Welcome to the Gospel for Life. We have four Treasure Valley pastors committed to showing that the gospel is not just for that religious part of your life, but rather it's for all of life. You never graduate from the gospel. I'm Josh Bales, pastor of the Well Church, here with Russell Herman, pastor at Cloverdale United Reformed Church, Phil Moran, pastor at Christ Presbyterian Church, and Jonathan Van Hoogen, pastor at Spring United Reformed Church. Now, if you'd like to find out more about us or catch past broadcasts or get information about our annual conference, you can find us at ReformationVoice.com. All right, we are going way back in the archives for this next segment. We have Dr. Joel Beakey from 2017 at our 500-year anniversary conference. Uh, they are talking about the solas of the Reformation during this Q&A panel discussion. What is the key area for Reformation today, doctrine, practice, or both? Yeah. You see... In a sense, I, I beg the question because the Reformation is all about ministering to the whole man and head, heart, and hands. That's the motto of our seminary. That's what we try to do in book ministry. That's the goal of our lives. The whole man must be ministered to. It, you know, that's the problem with Pentecostalism. They minister to the heart but not the head so much, not, not, not exegeting Scripture so well. And the problem with cerebral Reformed faith where you don't preach experientially to people is you've got the head straight but you don't have much going on in the heart. And the beauty of the reformed, the historic reformed Puritan faith, I mean men like Calvin and Bootser and Peter Martyr, and also people like Perkins and Bunyan and Goodwin and Owen, the Puritans, they minister to the whole man, head, heart, and hands. And they believe that when you minister to the mind and you, you preach also experientially to the soul, your whole life will be impacted. And you'll be so enamored with the gospel that you want to go out and reach others as well. So you'll be an evangelist. As Calvin said, a Christian who loves the Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity cannot not be an evangelist. To be in love with Jesus Christ and not love the souls of your fellow men is an oxymoron. And so in the Reformed faith, everything needs reforming. Your doctrine, your practice, your life. And the goal of the Reformation was the Reformed Church must always be reforming, always coming closer to what Scripture really is and what it says, and living accordingly. That's the goal. That's the passion of everyone who, who, who really is genuinely Reformed in their theology. A lot of different questions on predestination and free will, um, but this one's specific to Luther. What was Luther's view of predestination and free will in regards to salvation? Yeah, Luther's view was the uh, same as a historic Reformed view. Luther actually believed both, in, you know, predestination is two parts, right? Election and reprobation. And Luther believed in both parts, robustly. He also believed that um, we're saved only by free grace. Now, there's a tricky thing here, because do we have a free will? Did you have a free will to choose whether to come here today, yes or no? Of course you did. You freely chose to be here. But you see, what Luther taught, and this is, well, I'm going to finish the first part about predestination. Some of Luther's followers continued to push reprobation more and more into the background, including Melanchthon after Luther died. And so by 1580, 
when the formula of Concord was signed, that this was, this was the, the collected writings of the confessional statements of the Reformed. It was put in a book called the Book of Concord, 1580, really for all practical purposes. Not that reprobation was explicitly rejected, but it was just missing. And uh, Lutherans ever since have tended to view predestination only in terms of election. And that's a, that's, a, that's, a, that's a problem in their theology. The Bible does speak of reprobation a number of times, and we can't avoid speaking about things the Bible speaks about. So Luther himself was sound there, some of his followers a bit weak, especially on the reprobation end of things. Now in terms of free will, of course, Luther wrote the classic work against free will to salvation called the bondage of the will. And that was in response to Erasmus's challenge to Luther and the Lutherans as Erasmus, you know, sat on the fence. He, he wrote in praise of folly against Roman Catholicism, and then he turned around and wrote a book against Luther. Well, when you sit on the fence, you get bullets from both sides. And Erasmus had a hard life because he got it from both ends badly. They beat him up on both sides. But in his heart of hearts, he still remained a Roman Catholic. But he was persuaded that Luther understood the real issue. And he said in his book, Martin Luther, you are one of the few people that understands the real issue. Is man's will enslaved to such a degree that he cannot choose salvation? Or is there still some goodness in man that he can choose his salvation? So the classic reform position, which Luther embraced, is that in terms of daily life decisions, we have a free will, yet it's bound. So that in terms of salvation, we can never choose good. So let me explain that real quickly. Let's say in front of me here, we had um, a chalkboard. I drew a line down the center of the whiteboard. I should say whiteboard, chalkboard's too old. Whiteboard. On the right side of the board, light, right half, just put the word good above it. Good, true, good. On the left side of the board, put evil. You see, what Luther would say was that un until you're regenerate, you can never choose anything on the good side. If you choose to murder someone, it's very, very bad. You're way, way off to the left, aren't you? It's about as far as you can go. If you choose to donate $3 million of your inheritance to, to help start a hospital, well, by nature, you didn't do it out of faith, so it's impossible to please God because it's not done out of faith. You probably did it out of some mixture of motive for self and for pride, and you want your name on the hospital, whatever. So that's a better thing, but it's still not over in the good column because good works must be done out of faith in accordance with the spirituality of the law, loving God above all your neighbors yourself, and to the glory of God. And you really didn't give that money for any of those three reasons. And so the X on that event will be close to the center column because that's a very good thing to do to give $3 million to a hospital, but it's still not over in the good side. So you have a free will on the evil side, <laughs> whether you want to choose things that are outwardly kind of good, civic good, but you can never cross over and do true good until you're born again. So you have a free will. God's not binding you not to come here today. But your will is bound. 
until you're saved. Why do you think so many people dislike Calvin so much? I have no idea. <laughs> it was very likable. Well, you know, rumors, rumors have persisted. Castellio uh, made up all kinds of things about Calvin. And, and Calvin, you know, Calvin was at fault in some areas. I mean, he shouldn't have agreed that Servetus would, would die, but what most people don't tell you is that the Roman Catholics would have killed him, the Lutherans would have killed him. Everyone that day would have killed him if he came in the area because he was so provocative and such a heretic that that's what they did at that time. It's wrong on all of their accounts because it, no one should have killed him. But what they also won't tell you is that when Calvin warned Servetus before he came, if you come here and you stir up your anti-Trinitarian views, your life could be at stake. He warned him out of love. Servetus came anyway to stir up trouble. On top of that, I mean, maybe you call this merciful, maybe you don't, but when they did decide to, to kill Calvin, to kill Calvin, to kill Servetus, a lot of people have tried to kill Calvin, um, Calvin actually wrote to all his friends, he wrote to Bullinger, even meek and mild-mannered Bullinger said he needs to die. So there was nobody that was saying of the Reformed faith, of the Lutheran faith, of the Catholic faith that said Servetus should live. So when they decided, the town council decided he should die, Calvin said, when you kill him, do it in the most mercifully way, most merciful way you can with the least pain. And the town council didn't listen to him. And they wanted a harsh death for Servetus because he was so deserving of it. So that throws a little different light on it. You see, historically, one thing you have to learn about church history is we're always children of our time. You and I are children of, of the 21st century North America. That's who we are. We're, we're not from the 17th century. So we can easily sit in judgment on the 16th and 17th centuries. How could they kill people? How could they possibly do it? And probably 200 years from now, hopefully society will wake up and say, can you believe that in the 21st century, America killed one million babies every year? And can you believe that there were Christian preachers, even Reformed preachers, that never got excited about it and passionate about it from the pulpit, never wept a tear over it? They got so used to killing babies, not just one Servetus, but a million babies. What a barbarous land. How could preachers not be preaching about it? How could the congregation not be stirred up about it? How could people be quiet about it? You see, I think what we're doing today is far worse than what Calvin did. So, also in his personality, Calvin sometimes was a bit provocative, and maybe some people didn't like him for that. But most of all, I think Calvin got that ill reputation because he was trying to change things. When you're a leader and you're trying to change things for good, you're going to get opposition. So let's say Russell, in his church, let's say the town council of Boise made a decision that every single citizen in Boise must go to his church. But, but can you imagine the problems he'd face if suddenly... 200,000 people showed up at his church, and he had to discipline everyone who was living 
maybe unlawfully together. You know, they weren't married, and two people are living together. You have to discipline them all. You realize the opposition he would get? That's what, that's what Calvin had. Genevan citizens were required to come to his church. And so, of course, he's going to get all kinds of opposition. The old statement is, in Dutch, he who stands in the front will get kicked in the rear. That's just true. You can't be a preacher and get no opposition. You know, John Wesley in the 1700s, in his diary one time, he says, Lord, I've gone a whole day without anybody criticizing me. What's wrong, Lord? <laughs> Calvin was a very good friend to many people. The godly loved him, and he was a very godly man, warm and friendly and kind. But he believed in standing up for God's truth and God's law, and that got him in a lot of trouble. If you were able to give your favorite book on Calvin, what would that be? There is a 19th century one. I'm trying to think of the author's name. It's slipping me right now. That, that was the old standard. But I think Bruce Gordon from Yale has, has, has done the very best. Um, he published it in 2009, 500th anniversary of Calvin. So it's a very recent one, 500th anniversary of Calvin's birth. That is a very gripping read. It's a page turner. I don't agree with everything Bruce Gordon says in it, but I think it's probably the best overall biography of Kelvin at this point in time. I don't like the way he tries to psychoanalyze Kelvin at a few points. I would throw that, those parts out, but for the rest, it's very, very good.